<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. In Episode 8, Season 2, Just Science interviews Dr. Jan de Kinder from the National Institute of Forensic Science and Criminology in the Belgium Department of Justice. Jan explores how trace evidence was critical in a case involving the murder of two young girls that occurred 20 years ago in Belgium. During the time of the murders, Belgium was dealing with a large number of missing children's cases. The suspect's genes were the key piece of evidence linking the suspect to the murders based on fibers found in both victims' clothing. We'd also like to make you aware of a great opportunity coming in January 2018. The Forensic Technology Center of Excellence will be hosting the Second Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium. This symposium was last held in 2015 and brings together impression pattern and trace evidence professionals for a full three days of workshops, presentations, and posters. Call for workshop presenters ends Friday, October 18th. Visit www.forensiccoe.org for more information. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Funding for this season is brought to you by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. We're podcasting this week from the American Society of Crime Lab Directors meeting in Dallas, Texas in early May of 2017. We've had a series of wonderful guests out of this meeting. This is uh, the key meeting for those in laboratory management across the United States. And I think we have a fair international contingent as well. Uh, one of the international contingent is Jan de Kinder. And uh, Jan, tell me your affiliation in, in Belgium. What is your official title and organization? Well, the official title is the National Institute of Forensic Science and Criminology. And in fact, we are part of the Department of Justice. And our organization is, in fact, a scientific organization. So it means that we do quite a lot of scientific research as well as forensic casework. Okay, very, very good. For those of you who are familiar with some of the other things that the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence does, Jan contributed to the work that we did in optical topography. So I encourage you to look at the report that we did in that area. Jan and I uh, had some interesting discussions because there's some differences between how the United States interprets uh, firearms evidence and the way that that occurs in, in Europe. We're not gonna get into that today, but today actually we're gonna be talking about another one of Jan's passions, which is in trace evidence and there's been a landmark case that uh, he's been involved in in Belgium that I think will be really, really interesting to get into and demonstrate some of the power of trace evidence work properly applied in a rigorous manner. So I appreciate you being willing to come on the podcast and share with us, Jan. Thank you, I'd be welcome to do so. In fact, it's a case which dates about 10 years in the past, mm -hmm. uh, in which at a certain moment in Belgium, a woman discovers during a fair at night that her two daughters are missing. And in Belgium, unfortunately, we have a bad history of missing children. So she phones the police, the police takes that quite seriously, and try to obtain as much as possible information. 
quickly. It means that immediately they start questioning the parents. They do a house search at the parents' premises. They would like to know what they are wearing. They send out search team. Also, a helicopter is being deployed to make photographs of the environment, see if the kids are not there. But unfortunately, they're not able to find the kids back during that night. So this was in Liege, is that Absolutely, right? Absolutely, yeah. So how big a town is Liege, would you say? It's a town with a couple of hundred thousand inhabitants. Okay. Uh, so the, Belgium is kind of divided, right? What type of town is Liege with respect to that dividing line? Yeah. Well, in fact, Belgium is a complicated country because you have three official languages in Belgium being Dutch, French, and German. German is only a minority of the people who speak that in our country. And Liege is definitely in the French-speaking part of the country. Okay. So you're saying child abduction is a serious problem in Belgium. Was it a surprise to the police that it, for it to happen? And is it considered like a safe kind of cozy little town or is it a little bit more of a, we'll call it a dynamic city or what would you call it? Well, it's somewhere in between. I would not say it is a dangerous place to go to. It's neither a dangerous place for child adoptions, but I must say that in the past in Belgium, you had a couple of stories about people molesting childs. So that makes that police now for the moment is very attentive to missing children and try when the moment that children are missing to do in fact everything to find them back in a quick time. And these were two girls of what kind of age were they? There were two girls uh, aged seven and ten. Okay so very unlikely if they were like a runaway to have gone very far. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So they looked directly in the neighborhood. They used dogs to try to find where they went to, but couldn't find them. And in fact, the whole search continued not only that night, but the following days, because they felt this is indeed getting a problem. Because as time progresses, you don't find the children. Your problem just becomes more and more important. And at that time, they also looked if there were any sexual delinquents in that area. They came up with a couple of names, so they contacted them to see where they were at that time. They could have been involved in that case. And one of them they could not contact. And apparently that was somebody who lived not too far indeed from where the girls disappeared. Mm -hmm. So what they, they do is they went to his house with the house warrant. They searched his house and for the kids, could not find anything. But during the search, something very weird appeared to them. That is, uh, in the kitchen sink, they found a jeans which was there, which was being washed. And for some strange reason, at that time, police said, well, no, this is pretty weird. We just seize that jeans. Sure. And we'll see later on what, what it will bring to us. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever washed a pair of pants, jeans even, in my kitchen sink. Let's just try to get into the mind of the individual. Why would someone do that as opposed to something else? Why not just get rid of the jeans? Or did the individual have a washing machine? I mean, were they using some sort of bleach or something like that to try to get rid of DNA evidence or something? Why would somebody do that in particular? It is odd, to say the least. It is absolutely odd. I don't know what the habits were of that person, but Apparently, that person did not have a washing machine, and normally, everything they, uh, they had to be washed, he just passed it to local uh, laundry shop, which mm -hmm. did everything for him. But police apparently was stuck by the fact that there were a lot of dishes there to be washed, and right. also a pair of jeans, just next to that in the sink. So they seized the jeans, 
Now, did they send those immediately to forensic analysis, or what happened at that point? Well, no, they just seized it, they dried it, so that it could be used for forensic analysis afterwards. And they tried to find that person, and they kept on looking for a couple of days, and then finally they made a public broadcast, asking him to come up to the police station for an interview. And it took another couple of days before he just went himself to the police station and said, well, here I am. You have apparently a number of questions to ask to me. Sure. Again, that's really interesting in the sense that Belgium's a kind of a small country, but this was after the EU was relatively unified. He theoretically could have fled from Belgium. Is that right? Relatively easily? Absolutely, because we currently have open borders within all the, what is called the Schengen area, that includes most of the European Union countries, mm -hmm. but also Switzerland and Norway. Again, I'm just trying to understand it to see, because it's relevant later on here. He must have spent some time trying to do what is necessary to clean up after himself and remove evidence to the greatest extent possible from his perspective. And once he felt confident enough, he's just like, I'm gonna get away with this and turned himself in. Maybe he didn't understand that he could have gotten away more easily, I don't know. Well, at the moment that he got to the police, a number of strange things could be observed. First of all, apparently he has shaved himself. He mm. did not have any hair anymore. And all the clothes that he wore on that evening were washed in a public laundry, except for the jeans. Right. Which he tried to wash himself. There were more things which were quite suspicious. For instance, his shoes completely disappeared. And it seems that the police were so desperate to find these shoes back that they seized everything which was collected by the, the public garbage company. And they searched in everything to find these shoes back, but they could not find them. And up to date, nobody has found the shoes. So these are things which make you think about making evidence disappear. Right. In the meanwhile, the police has been examining video surveillance cameras, has been interviewing people who were present at that fair, and they said he was present there that evening. When they interview him, he said, I have not been there. I was somewhere else. How good was the video? Was the video good enough to be able to, to make a fairly good identification in that regard of him being in the area? Well, according to police information, the information that he was there was quite solid. Fair enough. Because this wasn't that long ago in that sense. I mean, if it had been the 90s, it may have been more difficult to be able to make that kind of a, of a stronger ID. I don't know how much Belgium has gotten into the CCTV kind of stuff like the United Kingdom has and some downtowns here in the United States have. It is an evolution which is going on, and we see that now video surveillance camera are becoming an, a very important tool in police investigations. He was kind of an amateur trace evidence guy, to some extent at least, right? He was doing everything he possibly could to make it so that a trace evidence examiner wouldn't be able to link him to this crime. Absolutely. Yeah. So what happened next? So he came in, you noticed these aspects of him. So what did you all do next? Well, he was interviewed. Police, of course, had some ideas that he, that he was involved in the disappearance of the girls. But we have to wait for another two weeks until they recovered the bodies of the two girls. And in fact, they were found back in a small channel in a, in a sewer next to a train track. Unfortunately, forensically speaking, is that there was a continuous water flow in that sewer, mm -hmm. which makes you think that, well, water will wash away part of the evidence. On the other hand, water will also destroy DNA evidence. And when the girls were sampled, 
first of all, everybody thought, well, we're just going to solve this case with DNA analysis. We're just mm -hmm. going to establish a link between the suspect and the two girls by finding a trace of DNA of him on the two girls. Right. But unfortunately, after several trials, we were not able to secure any DNA sample. And the theory is that that's because of the flowing water in this channel. Well, the theory is that, first of all, DNA and water is not a very good combination. Yeah. And secondly, you have the flowing water, which is even worse because it takes away a number of micro traces that one leaves on somebody else's body or clothing. Was this channel, was it a, a dirt channel or was it a concrete channel or do you know that? It was a concrete channel. So he wasn't trying to hide the bodies. He expected the bodies to be found. Well, basically. It's hard to say, I guess. Well, basically, because the channel itself was well hidden, he probably thought that they would never find it. Also, in order to find the bodies, the police had to remove quite a number of trees. I see. They already inspected before that area without being able to find that. So sewer. there were trees across this, the channel? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. They were hiding the channel, and first of all, well, police already investigated that area, but they were not able to find the sewer. And then only later on, somebody said, well, you know, there's a sewer over there. Did you examine that? And police said, well, we can't find it. So they had to remove all the trees, and at that time, only they were able to find that entrance. So do we know anything about, did he commit the crime there and then dump the bodies, or did he dump them some period of time after his crime? Do we have any idea about the sequence of events in that regard? No, we don't know. Okay. The only thing we know is that apparently there's a monitor on the water flow of that system. Mm -hmm. And that monitor has dropped early in the morning after they disappeared. Interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's probably, but of course there's no way to know, but that's probably an indication of what happened. Then. That's what yeah. we think, but of course we do not know that with absolute certainty. Now the problem is the girls were found back in that flowing water. Also the weekend before, there had been quite a number of thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. so not only we have the continuous flowing water, but during the weekend we just had a big amount of water going over. A torrent, as it yeah. were. So having found the girls and ruling out DNA must have been very frustrating. So what else was looked at? What else did you all try to do to try to get some linkage going? Well, the second thing we tried to do is to do a one-to-one -one taping on the body of the girls. Now, what is a one-to-one -one taping? A one-to-one -one taping is a technique which we frequently use in our country, where we cover the whole body with small strips of adhesive plastic. And every strip is numerated. We take a picture of the area where they have been put. Then we collect all these adhesive tapes. We put them on plastic foil so that we collect all the traces which are present on the bodies. So as the following step, we investigated, do we have interesting micro traces present on these one-to-one -one taping of the bodies? But these one-to-one -one tapings, unfortunately, they did not provide any results due to the flowing water, I think, which took away all traces. So we were about to give up, but at that time, indeed, we had a big meeting with the investigator, and they said, well, you know, we do not have any more additional information to solve this case, so please just try something. Try to move on anyhow with the microtrace analysis. So at the beginning, we were not really reluctant to do that because we expected to find nothing. But as there was no information, further information available, we said, okay, we're just gonna give it a try and have a look at the clothes of the girls and see whether we can find evidence of transfer 
between them and the clothes of the suspect. These transfer, they are based on the famous principle of Edouard Lecar. Yes. Every contact leaves a trace. I think that during this podcast, that every, will be an ongoing. <laughs> yes, every forensic scientist in the United States learns uh, Lecard's principle, so that's very familiar. Absolutely, but I think here in this case, the Lecard principle will be essential in solving it. Mm -hmm. And indeed, we had a closer look to the clothing of the girls and also the clothing of the suspect, and we had some strange findings with the clothing of the suspect because. Remember the jeans which was seized while being in the sink. Mm -hmm. When we had a close look at them, it turned out to be a special jeans. It turned out to be not the type of jeans that everybody is wearing. Because normally a jeans is made out of cotton. Mm -hmm. And here, if you examine his jeans, the label of the jeans says clearly it's 100% cotton. But in the weft of the jeans, we found polyester fibers. Okay. That's quite fascinating. So I wonder how much polyester there is in your average 100% cotton jeans. But normally this should not be any. When there's polyester fiber, theoretically, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump it a little bit here. I'm going to seem smarter than I really am because I've, I've, obviously I've, I've heard some of the story from you before we did the podcast. Polyester wouldn't normally have gotten any of the dye. It's harder to dye polyester than it is cotton. Is that right? Or polyester as it was put into the jeans was not dyed at all. What's the thought process there? Well, first of all, we did not expect to find polyester fibers there in the right. jeans. And secondly, apparently the gene had undergone some heat treatment because the polyester fibers originally were fully transparent. But through the heat treatment of the genes, there has been a transfer of the dye from the indigo fibers of the genes into the polyester. So we have now really special fibers which are deformed by the heat. Was it uniform in the polyester fibers? Not at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. So the, the deformation was not uniform but was present in all the fibers. You could see indeed that the, the fibers had some bulbs, some different shapes due to exposure to heat. And also different areas of the fibers had more or less dye taking over from the indigo cotton fibers. So do you have any idea whether this was a manufacturing process or did he just iron his jeans? I mean, do we have any, any clue? If it's the same across the entire garment, it's almost certainly part of the manufacturing process at some point, I guess, right? Well, that's not clear because we, we tried to find similar jeans with polyester in it. Mm -hmm. And at that time, we did something which we now and then do when we have these type of cases, that is we ask all the members of our forensic laboratory to bring their genes to the lab and sample them. Sure. We had a look, could we find similar genes in genes which are on the market in Belgium? And we collected about 545 genes from different <laughs> collaborators and we sampled them all and we did not find any genes where we had that polyester fiber present. We did not have any genes where we had the deformed polyester fibers. So none of the other genes had any polyester in them? Any polyester. That's odd. So he got it from some very unusual source. Absolutely. Okay. This also makes that, forensically speaking, this evidence becomes interesting because you have something which is rare. If you just compare normal genes fibers, of course, the results would not be that important in the context of the case. But here we have indeed very special fibers which are present there. And with very unique deformation and this very unique indigo dye leached into it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So that's that's amazing. You know, impossible probably to put a number to, but certainly you could put some sort of bound on it based on your experience with the 545 samples, right? Well, f 545 means that you have a probability of occurrence less than 0.2%. Right. There you go. Which already is a very interesting number because it, it says that the probability is not very common to find this type of trousers. Sure. And, you know, there's also other circumstantial things that can obviously add into the case as well. You're trying to make linkages and even, you're, if you will, pulling a thread <laughs> in the case. And as you pull those threads, you're building up a bigger picture. So you can start with that 0.2%. Who knows where that's going to end up by the time you've pulled all the threads in this Absolutely. case, right? Absolutely. So we started indeed with 0.2% rare polyester fibers, and we find a couple of hundreds of them on the clothing of the girls. Which wow, was a couple quite, of hundred, okay. Yes. Well, if you add up the polyester and the jeans fibers, we are about at that number, which is quite a substantial number, given the fact that the clothing of the girls have been in flowing water for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. That's one issue. Secondly is, where did we find these fibers? because they were in the flowing water, everything which was exposed to the water has been gone. But in the seaming of their clothes, mm -hmm. as well as where the clothes has been folded, there we find big collections of fibers. In the seams and the fold of the garments. Yes. When you do the one-to-one -one sampling, how do you deal with the fold in the garment? How does the sampling occur then? Well, actually we did the one-to-one -one taping to the bodies of the girls. Mm -hmm. When we examined the clothing, we did an almost one-to-one -one taping. There, indeed, we just exposed them on the table. We did not take care of any folds, mm -hmm. but we just tried to get as much as possible evidence from the clothing in general. And in the seams, we just tried to, indeed, to press a bit harder so we get as much as possible micro traces which were present in the mm -hmm. seams. Back in another lifetime, I did some spacecraft work. We would get into, we used to call them bunny suits, because <laughs> the average room has hundreds of thousands of particles per cubic meter. How do you do that kind of sampling? Because you're really looking at very, very tiny amounts of material to some extent without contaminating the field. Indeed, we use protective clothing, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh, also, we do the sampling of the suspects of one location and of the victims on another location in mm -hmm. order to avoid any contamination between both of them. Mm -hmm. In this case, the sampling of the clothing of the girls has been done in my laboratory, while the sampling of the genes of the suspect has been done in the laboratory of the police in Liège. Okay. And they sent the samples later on to us. Fair enough. But of course, we started with the genes. At that time, we saw, well, this could be interesting. Then we had a look at different other clothing that he was wearing, his T-shirts. Sure. The imprint on the T-shirts. The imprint had what is called some flocking fibers mm -hmm. on them. We could find them also back with the two girls. So at that time, indeed, we, we started So now to you have two types of linkages, at least just from the fiber analysis. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we had the jeans, we had his T-shirts, but also his underpants. Mm -hmm. There were some links between the underpants and the t-shirt of one of the two girls. Mm -hmm. Which in this case indeed was quite important because the prosecutor used that as part of the accusation of uh, the suspect of having obliged the girls to have oral sexual intercourse with her. Uh, otherwise you would not find any fibers of his underwear on her t-shirt. So I think these elements are, are quite uh, important. 
So we have here quite a lot of transfer from his garments to the garments of the girls. We also try to find transfer from the garments of the girls to his clothing, well being aware the fact that he washed his clothes, so quite a number of these fibers would have been gone. Now, the problem that we had in this case is, well, the girls were wearing clothing which only had very common fibers. As you're looking for fibers which are rare. And in this particular case, we only had the, the trousers of one of the two girls which were shredding really particular type of fiber, mm -hmm. which we could find back on his clothes and more particular on his belt. I see. Why do I mention the belt? Because he washed his clothes, but he did not wash the belt. Right. So we did find a substantial amount of these fibers present on these clothes in general, but more particularly on the belt. So you actually have four transfers, three from him to the girls, and now one from the girls to his belt to him that you've Absolutely. been able to establish. And that wasn't it. You actually found another secondary transfer, isn't that right? Yes. While the investigation was ongoing, we found that there was a very special red fiber present on his clothing, but also on the clothing of the girls. So at that time, we were looking for the area where he might have committed the crime. And we thought of some red carpet, something like that. So the red fibers attracted our attention. And during the police investigation, uh, different evidence was submitted to us, which we examined mm -hmm. on their resemblance to these red fibers. But you could not find anything up to, indeed, the cover of the beds of his girlfriend. I see. There we had a clear match with these red fibers. Mm -hmm. We could investigate that further. Turned out to be not only these red fibers, but also transfer of other fibers from that cover to him. And then further on to the girls. There's a lot of really interesting cases in the United States where secondary transfer was from a pet. You have pet hair, secondary transfers. I'm sure there must be some cases with a blanket and carpet and things of that nature as well. That's really extraordinary. You're actually able to find the source. That's excellent, excellent work. Yes, and moreover, apparently the washing as well as the flowing water did not stop these fibers from being there. We still had substantial amounts present to indicate that there was a secondary transfer. When you do the one-to-one -one taping, the one-to-one -one sampling on the body itself, do you, do you sample from the hair as well of the victim? So did you pick up any of these fibers in the hair as well? Yes, absolutely. Okay. We have prepared for our laboratory a special kit to do the one-to-one -one sampling. And in that kit, there's also a comb in mm -hmm. order to a comb, sample. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah to sample the hair. Okay. So we have quite a number of important transfers that we have indicated where we were able to, to demonstrate through our investigation. How much work did you all do in terms of statistical analysis, looking at all of the different fiber evidence? Because you have, you have quite a rich level now. You know, we started off at the 0.2%, and after having pulled all of those threads, you really have an enormous amount of at least common sense confidence. Is there a way to quantify that overall, or did, how much did you all look at the, how to approach that part of the problem? Well, in fact, that part of the problem was approached, and we had to approach that because the suspect said, well, you know, I've been there that evening, and I saw the girls over there, and they came to me, and they said to me, yes, I would like to play here on stage. Could you please lift me up and put me on stage? So, indeed. He literally said that as his he alibi. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. 
He said, well, the girls just asked me, and I just took them. I just put them on stage. So I had a contact with him. Sure. So it's logical to find fibers on me from them, to find my fibers, my fibers of my clothing on them. Now, he didn't say this until he was challenged with the trace evidence, of course. Absolutely. Right. But that, indeed, put us before new challenges. Can we make a distinction between somebody who is putting two girls on stage mm -hmm. and somebody who is raping two girls and killing them afterwards? Right. So in order to make a distinction between both of them, we used a theorem which is widely applied in my laboratory, that's the theorem of Bayes. Mm -hmm. The Bayes theorem, yes. Yeah where we set up two hypotheses. The hypothesis that, on the one hand, that he raped and killed the girls, which mm -hmm. caused the transfer. And on the other hand, we have the hypothesis that he declares that indeed he only saw the girls and he just helped them on stage. Mm -hmm. What we do in order to compare the two hypotheses is we have a look at the evidence. Which one of the two hypotheses is the most probable given our evidence material? Now, in this case, we have a substantial amount of transfer from the suspect to the two girls. We have also a substantial amount of transfer of fibers from one of the girls to the suspect. We have the secondary transfer. We know that we have lost a huge amount of fibers through the washing of his clothes, through the fast-flowing water. So for us, there can only be one explanation for that amount of fibers that we are seeing right now, is that there has been a very intense and or very long contact between the suspect and the girls. Right. So basically, if you transfer to the Bayes theorem, that means that your hypothesis that he has raped and killed the children becomes much more probable than the hypothesis that the transfer occurred while he was putting them on stage. Did you all actually do anything like where you saw what kind of transfer there would uh, occur just by holding somebody and putting a bump on a stage or a platform, or did you do any of that kind of empirical work behind that? No, we didn't do that, but we have a fiber section which has quite a lot of experience. They're doing quite a lot of casework every year, so they have an idea about how many fibers transfer between different types of clothing when you perform certain actions. Okay, well that's even better actually, right? Because that gives you a broader array of circumstances under which you can see what transfer looks like. Now, uh, did the evidence end with just the trace? Could you go back and, and maybe use the trace to try to get some DNA work going? Or tell me what happened there. Well, at this moment, we were very happy with these results. And also the prosecutor was extremely happy. I can imagine. We were, we were, <laughs> a, we're yeah. able to provide all this information to him. Yes. So we felt, well, we're going to close down this case for us. Well, it's finished. But when closing down the case, all of a sudden we became aware that we've forgotten something. The sampling of the, the genes of the suspect was only done partially. It has not been done by us. It has been done by local police in Liège. Right. And when we get a case in like that, we know that we have to sample the genes not only on the outside, but also on the inside. When you talk about sexual assault cases, right. well, sometimes you find on the inside of the genes quite interesting information. So we just asked them, could you please re-examine their genes and perform assembling on the inside? Perhaps there could be interesting information there. And when they did so, they found three hairs. Three hairs which were examined. They did not contain any nuclear DNA but we could examine them morphologically, compare them 
to the two girls. We could also perform a mitochondrial DNA analysis and compare it to them as well. And it turned out to be that there was a match with one of the two girls. Of course, it's mitochondrial DNA, which means that your uh, statistics are not so important. But here we were able to show that the profile, the DNA results we got out of it, occurred with a frequency of at most 1 to 4,000 in a population, which is a very good result. That's an excellent result. And to some extent, there's exclusion, too, with respect to the perpetrator and things of that nature. So there's only so many sources that mitochondrial DNA could have been. Those hairs could have only come from certain people, right? So where did they come from? And especially given the fact that they were on the inside of the genes, I think, is also, given his story, you know, that his alibi, quite critically important. Well, the fact that he has sexually abused the girls relies on the transfer of fibers from his underpants to the T-shirt but also to the fact that we have found three hairs on the inside of his genes. So did the case end up going to trial at that point? Absolutely, the case went to trial, and the suspect was found guilty of abduction, rape, and murder of the two girls. And subsequently, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. An amazing, amazing story, and a wonderful, wonderful example of how properly applied trace evidence can be a powerful, powerful technique, even in the era of DNA, because uh, no one would have really been able to solve that case if it weren't for the trace evidence linkages, really. It's an amazing demonstration, y'all, because sometimes, you know, it does get discounted too much. It can be difficult. It can be a very labor-intensive process, but it also can be very, very powerful in these cases. Absolutely. I think DNA analysis has a lot of possibilities, but the forensic possibilities in general are much broader, and we should depending on each case, be able to apply which is best suited in order to solve that case. Well, it's also great to be able to learn about what's going on uh, outside the United States. Uh, the American forensic community is always looking to learn. I, I want to thank you very much, not only for being on the podcast, but for all the work that you've done for the American forensic community. You're welcome. Next week on Just Science, we interview Ray Wickenheiser, the current president of the American Society of Crime Laboratory Directors, about a serial killer case in Louisiana. The Forensic Technology Center of Excellence would like to announce a call for workshops for their Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium. If you would like to share your research with the forensic community this January in Arlington, Virginia, please visit www.forensiccoe.org for all of the IPTI's details. Travel sponsorships are available for presenters. Workshop submissions are due October 18th. Please visit the FTCOE website at ForensicCOE.org for more information about this podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.